you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We are back at the Huddle and Flow podcast. Week one of the NFL is in the books. The Washington football team sits atop the NFC East. Russell Wilson is throwing the ball around the yard like it's the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm Steve White. This is Jim Trotter joining me. Jim, week one, we're off and running. Yeah, Steve, you know, for me, it was all about quarterback play and particularly young black quarterbacks, you know, who are becoming the face of the league. Uh, When you look at what Lamar Jackson did, I mean, he was darn near perfect in that game against the Browns. You talk about Russell Wilson. We can talk about Cam Newton. We can talk about Patrick Mahomes. The list doesn't end. So for me, week one was all about quarterback play and the teams that have those franchise guys, obviously took a major step forward in terms of establishing that they are going to be clubs to be reckoned with. Yeah, Kyler Murray did his thing, but uh, Kyler Murray, note, yes. on that note, Aaron Rodgers, let it be known, he's still here. I'm still doing my thing. I'm still getting it done. i tell you what, what I took from, from week one, we, we, you know, in terms of on-the-field play, the Seahawks. Again, the fact Russell Wilson came out with 31 of 35. They threw the ball that many times when they weren't behind. Jamal Adams came out and was just insane. 12 tackles, two sacks, I think a couple uh, tackles for loss. And Bobby Wagner, I mean, come on, Jim. This guy, he's so good, doesn't get talked about enough. But when I, I watched that game, he was everywhere in that game. Oh, he's a dominant player. I think back to when Bobby first came into the league and the two dominant premier li- inside linebackers in the NFC West in particular were in San Francisco with Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman. And I'll never forget Bobby Wagner telling me at that time, that's what he's aspiring to be, not just as good as them, but better to be recognized as the best linebacker in that division. And then it went on to, you know, this issue with Luke Keithley and who was the better inside linebacker. And whatnot. Bobby Wagner is just a straight up beast, man. So he deserves any recognition he gets. And there was a reason a couple of years back when GM John Snyder had to remake that team, knowing that he couldn't pay everyone, he identified two players 
on that team that he had to have, one on offense, one on defense, and that was Russell Wilson on offense and Bobby Wagner on defense. And we see very smart move. Very smart move. Very smart move. Hey, you know, we, we got to get these Raiders too, Jim. I mean, look, their schedule is about to be an absolute murderer's row. I think they've got the Saints, Bills, uh, Chiefs, and Patriots coming up. But the way they finished that game at Carolina, I mean, Derek Carr talks about he wants to be respected. That's how you earn respect. On a fourth quarter drive, he hits three, three completions to start a drive from his own 25 spreads it out. They've got a DPI, which could be disruptive to the flow of what they were doing, but they still took advantage of it. And then Josh Jacobs, my guy. I mean, the fact that they went there and won that game when it looked like they were about to lose it, uh, that was an impressive start for a team a lot of people have some pretty high hopes for. Yeah, I'm still going to reserve some judgment there, Steve. As, As much as it was impressive, I have to remember that it was the Carolina Panthers who are going through a rebuild process here. So I will learn a lot more about the Raiders come Monday night when they face off against the Saints, who we know um, have the talent to go on and win a Super Bowl this year. So I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit on that. But let me ask you one thing. You and I both were at that Rams-Cowboys game. And two things I took away from this weekend were the number of OPIs that were called. And particularly right. not just the number called, but when they were called. When you look at A.J. Green getting called for OPI on what could have been the winning touchdown. When you see Michael uh, 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 Gallup getting called for OPI on a play that could have either tied the game or set up a winning touchdown. Those sorts of plays, they're huge in terms of a team establishing, um, trying to establish some momentum and a foundation going forward for the season. So I don't know about you, but I can't remember a week one where I saw so many controversial and and consequential OPIs late in the game. That, that, that's a great point, Jim. I mean, because in Cincinnati with the A.J. Green, at least you would see him extend the arm. I don't agree with the call, the timing of, of that game. Let the players play because it was physical, that whole sequence right there. That game we were at, if you go back and watch some of the tape, Jalen Ramsey and Troy Hill were mugging Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup all game. They were physical with him, but that's how you do Amari Cooper. That's the book on Amari Cooper. Handle him at the line of scrimmage. You can take him out of the game. So then all of a sudden, when you call a physicality play on a PI and they call it on Michael Gallup, like, no, it was an incredible throw by Dak Prescott, a great catch by Gallup. Even though there was contact, I, I was just kind of let them play. I mean, it was just such a, a good physical game. And, and to put that in there, that, that's interesting. But on the note, Jim, for the officials, remember, they didn't have a preseason either. They were not going to training camps to get work in. For the lack of controversy we had with officiating this week, when normally that's all we're hearing in the first four weeks, in large part because the competition committee is telling them, okay, focus on offensive holding, right. focus on DPI, focus on – we didn't have those conversations this year. If that's the only two calls we're going to be coming out of this week one with when it comes to officiating, I know the losing teams don't like it, but I think overall that's a pretty good job by the officials. Yeah, no question. Um, we always say you don't – the one thing you don't want in a game – is to have to hear from an official in terms of a critical moment or consequential moment. And I can only think of those two um, based on every game that I watched or saw as being critical in terms of the outcome of the game. But no, for the most part, 
Look, we said coming into week one, we thought there was going to be a lot of sloppy play from there having been no on-field work in the offseason, no uh, preseason games and whatnot. But for the most part, I thought the clubs were fairly clean in terms of how they played. It wasn't as sloppy as I thought. I will say this. More than players on the field, what I saw were some coaches who needed preseason. Because when I look at the last game of the week and I look at the way that Vic Fangio handled the clock at the end of his game, he likely cost his club a potential victory. And we can also question Mike McCarthy's decision to go for it on fourth down early in the fourth quarter when you've got a chance to kick the tying field goal, you know, against the Rams there. So um, to me, that was a reminder that as much as owners focus on who are the hot coordinators, the play callers and this, there is so much more to being a successful head coach in the NFL than can you call a play or can you scheme up a play? You have to be able to not only manage people, but manage the clock and manage situations. And we saw some coaches that did not do that in week one. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, though, Jim. You talk about the clean play. And again, if those are the only two coaching blunders we're really talking about, even though Matt Patricia, you know, he he's also under the gun, but... That's probably not going to be his his last time making these types of mistakes. But the future of the preseason now has really got to come into question because, you know, players, starters don't play anyway. Now, we know the owners are probably going to want it back because it's a revenue driver. Even if it's two preseason games, it's a revenue driver getting people into stadiums, especially after a season when early part we're not going to have fans in stadiums. But I think four-game preseasons are done. Um, oh, without when question. it comes to that, when you see that, when you see the caliber of play. No, without question. And what we're going to see when this pandemic is over in future training camps is we're going to see more joint workouts to replace the preseason games that are lost. And, and coaches will be able to evaluate talent that way. So I'm absolutely right there with you. Um, I don't think we will ever see four preseason games again. Jim, the, the biggest takeaway, though, and you and I were talking about this, we were both in the beautiful brand new SoFi Stadium in Inglewood to watch that Rams-Cowboys game were no fans. Um, You know, we're hearing the players talking about, hey, this was like a scrimmage. This was like a youth league game. But (laughs) just the overall dynamic. I mean, I give the players credit, the coaches credit for staying focused, you know, for four hours doing their jobs under these circumstances. But the whole no fan thing is about as bizarre of a scenario. I mean, they were playing the game in an echo chamber. No, without question. I thought it was hilarious when um, Aaron Donald said after it was like a a little league game, but his mom and dad weren't in the stands yelling, Aaron, Aaron, you know, and if they had been in the stands yelling, Aaron, Aaron, he would have heard them, too. It was so quiet in there. No, the whole situation was just surreal um, is all I could think of. And I am not accustomed to NFL games without energy and that fan energy. And as much as we say that both teams are faced with the same situation. Um, What I got from that game, all I kept thinking about is that if the Rams are opening this new stadium and Jordan Fuller makes that tackle on fourth down against the Cowboys, what the the sound would have been like in Sophie Stadium, SoFi Stadium. And yet there was nothing. There were crickets, you know? And then to be in the press box where you'll normally hear, hear media kind of speak out or make some sort of audible gesture during key points in games when critical plays happen. 
And it was silent in there where we're all separated by like three or four seats on each side and plexiglass between all of those seats. So the whole thing was just really um, strange. And, and that's not to say that in any way I find fault with the NFL. I'm glad we're having games, but it is just a different experience right now than anything I have ever seen or experienced. Yeah. And, and look, we're here because of the pandemic and local health officials and, and the NFL and everything are kind of driving the no fans issue. Hopefully everyone continues to mask up and do what we need to do to continue to bring the curve down, the positive test down and the desk down. So at some point, and I'm speaking selfishly here, we can get people in football stadiums. I know that sounds minimal when we're all faced with what we're we're doing and trivial, but I mean, I think we're all, we're headed the right way. Let's continue to do the right thing. One last note on this, Jim, for what we do as a living in terms of covering the NFL, this is about as difficult as it gets because post-game mm. normally we're in locker rooms. We're having side conversations. We're speaking to assistant coaches or players who are maybe on the periphery who weren't involved necessarily in the big play, right? So we have, so we're on Zooms now. We can't go to both locker rooms. We, are, we have to focus on one team. So we couldn't go talk to Michael Gallup about that OPI because we were, we were doing some stuff with the Rams. Or we couldn't talk about somebody who picked up a blitz or something like that that set up a big play. It is so difficult that we're going to do our jobs well under the constraints. But to do them the way we normally do them, this is going to be an unbelievable challenge, which sucks because we're the messengers to the fans. We're the messengers to the people who pay attention to the sport. And to not kind of give them that complete information flow is is really – we were both sitting there like this is – this is going to be as tough as, as, of a year as it gets for what we do. Well, I'll say this to you, Steve. What makes it so difficult is if there is a particular aspect of a game that you want to focus on and zero in on as opposed to the broader picture, it's almost impossible to do. So let's say, for instance – the Rams made all these changes to their offensive line and some of their blocking schemes and whatnot. So after that game, what if you want to go talk to those offensive linemen and say, what's different? How did it feel? Et cetera, et cetera. You can't. There were no offensive linemen made available on the Zoom call. No. So what it does, in my opinion, in my opinion, is that it creates more of a herd mentality among the media where you all have to almost write on the same thing. And I think that's a disservice to the fans. Now, when I say a disservice, I don't mean that anyone is at fault here. We're all dealing with this pandemic and we have to abide by, you know, what's safest in terms of what the medical recommendations are and things. But I think it's disappointing that fans can't get that fuller picture that you talk about when there are specific aspects of a game you want to get to. And yet you can't talk to those players after the game. And what's going to happen is all of these armchair film gurus are going to make so many mistakes. Oh, yeah, this guy got beaten, man, coverage. Well, actually, no, it was an umbrella coverage where somebody was supposed to roll over and this misdiagnosed. Those guys are going to be exposed. The coach is going to come out the next day and blast these people for misdiagnosing. Well, if we had the opportunity to talk to you, first off, to assuming is always the issue. Good journalists like us, we will ask them what happened. We just don't have that opportunity, so we're going to have to stay away from it. But watch how many gotcha mistakes some of these journalistic geniuses that we work with make in that. Also, Jim, some of the pregame celebration 
um, social justice conversations and issues and gestures that we saw. We saw in Atlanta, they kicked the ball off. Both teams took a knee. We saw what happened in Kansas City on Thursday. We saw what happened um, at SoFi. Um, Sean McVay, when they played Lift Every Voice and Sing, the, the Black National Anthem, he said the timing of it, he misjudged it. And he brought his guys into the locker room because otherwise he would be standing around for five minutes. But just overall, the message, you know, we saw a lot of stuff out there. We saw the Dolphins players come out and say, like, hey, some of this marketing push the NFL is making is a little much. It's hollow um, compared to guys doing the real work. Just your thoughts um, on this before we get to somebody who's really got years of experience and some groundwork, grassroots work in handling these types of social justice issues with players in the NFL. Yeah, first off, in terms of Sean McVay, I found it interesting, though, that two of his players were out there on the field yeah. for Lift Every Voice and Sing. So if he got the timing wrong, how was it that two of his players got the timing right? Um, that was kind of curious to me. Look, Steve, I'll say this about this whole um, awakening of the NFL with social justice and whatnot. It, it does feel inauthentic to me from the standpoint the league has always been so reactionary instead of being proactive. And it had an opportunity three, four years ago to really address this issue, if it was important, to the owners and come out in this manner. And it did not. What it feels like now is that this is a safe zone now for owners in the league to come out and speak on these issues because the rest of the country or much of the country, if not much of the globe now, is demonstrating against social injustice and racial inequality. So for me... It feels as if the league has gone overboard to try and show once again, this awakening. Once again. Yeah. It's just, it's too dramatic. Look, you and I both being graduates of, of, of Howard University and HBCU, um, we know the Black um, National Anthem. But I don't need to hear it before a game. No. And, and truthfully speaking, I don't need to hear the Star Spangled Banner before a game um, because the league didn't always play the national anthem before a game and and to relieve itself of some of this it could go back to not playing it before a game but for me it's just a little too much with the black national anthem the the hashtags on the field the slogans um you know the names on helmets you know all of this i'm much more interested in what is the work being done do the work man that's, that's all that all. matters Yes, I don't need I don't need statements. I don't need donations. I just need work being done to try and make real change in this country so that we're all on a level field when it comes to to justice and equality. Yeah, Jim, as journalists, we we tell okay, we can tell the stories. We can talk about some of these initiatives, but to have it constantly in their face, it is a typical move of the NFL, we see it with discipline. Oh, we blew it with the initial discipline on Ray Rice. So now when we have a chance to do over, let's just come down full bore. The overreaction market correction um, is is so predictable. And look, I've got nothing wrong with the, with the heart and exactly what the NFL is trying to do to bring awareness to the social injustices. But just this waterfall of, of, of overdoing it does not seem as properly placed as when you're seeing some of these teams and players doing some of the things they're doing, do the work. We don't necessarily have to broadcast every last thing that you're doing. So on that note, it, though, 
Well, can I can I real, say one real, thing real quickly on that? Go ahead. I think, and I and I'm guilty of this as well. I always say the owners, the owners. There are some owners who are doing the work, you know. Yeah. And so I need I need to be careful and not just paint with a broad brush here. And there are owners who are doing the work behind the scenes, um, not only financially committing to these issues to try and make change, but also dealing with legislators, dealing with um, police officials law enforcement officials. So I, I want to make sure I say that, that some are, because it, it to me, if I don't, that's it. I, I'm as guilty as those who say, what are the players doing? Stop demonstrating and actually go do something. There are players doing something, and I know you're going to get us into that. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, Jim, let's, let's get ready to bring in our first guest here on episode two of the Huddle Flow podcast. It's Anquan Bolden, the co-founder of the Players Coalition. He has been doing this work for years. So let's hear what he has to say about everything going on with the NFL and its players and social justice right now. All right, here on Huddle and Flow, um, we're honored to have Mr. Anquan Bolden joining us for a conversation about social justice and the activism work that he is doing with the Players Coalition and others. And Anquan, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, is I go back to 2016 when you gathered up a group of players, a handful of players to go down to Capitol Hill to, to sort of start this fight. And there was no coalition at that time. Um, it was you wanting to respond to your cousin being murdered by an off-duty police officer. And I look at where the coalition is today and the impact that it's having. And I wonder, how do you describe this journey that you've been on over the last four years? What has it been like and, and, and what word best describes it? Uh, I mean, it's, there's, there's several. I mean, there's not just one word. Um, like you said, you were with us when we went to Capitol Hill in, in 2016. Um, but for me, that journey actually started a year prior to that. Um, 2015 was the year that my cousin was killed. Um, and I remember uh, it was my last year in San Francisco uh, and getting a call. Uh, well, my wife notified me after the, the Ravens game that we had just played. I mean, I was looking forward to that game. Obviously, I was traded from um, Baltimore to San Francisco. And at that time, it was actually me and Tori Smith um, were on the uh, San Francisco team. And uh, it was a game, obviously, we circled on the calendar, game that we was looking forward to, excited to play. And I remember, um, obviously, we won that game. But after that game, I had, a, uh, I had like, a, an appearance. I had a, a family who had won this, uh, this drawing or whatever, so I had an appearance after the game. It was probably about 15 minutes. Um, but I remember walking out of the locker room and going to the family area to meet my wife and my boys and the first thing my wife said out of her mouth was, uh, where's your phone? And I'm like, uh, it's in my backpack. So she was like, let me, let me have your phone. So I gave her my phone. She was like, all right, I'll, I'll talk to you after the, um, after the appearance. She gave me a kiss. I went to the parents, you know, I'm, I'm still like oblivious to what's going on. Um, go, I do the appearance with the family come back and get my wife and the, and the boys. And we usually go get something to eat after the game. So, uh, we went, we went to a restaurant and while we're eating, she said, uh, you know, we got to talk when we get home. So I'm like, okay. So we get home, put the boys in, you know, get the boys showered up, get them ready for bed. Cause they got school the next morning. 
once we put them down, she was like, um, you know, we went in the room. She closed the door. She was like, I got a, I got some bad news. I'm like, what's going on? She was like, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but your cousin Corey was killed. I'm like, what? Because I have two cousins named Corey. I'm like, Corey, what Corey? She was like, CJ's brother, um, Corey Jones. I'm like, Corey Jones? I'm like, what happened? Like, how, how did this happen? Because if you know, if you know Corey, he was like one of the most well-liked, most memorable, always smiling, no problems with nobody. Like, I, we used to joke, like, when we were younger, we used to wrestle and stuff like that, and he was the only one that didn't get into that stuff. So I'm still trying to figure out, like, what, like what's going on? She was like, a cop killed your cousin. I'm like, a cop? Like, how did he even come in contact with a police officer? You know what I'm saying? Like, he's not that kind of guy. So, like, I ended up getting on the phone and, and you know, phoning some relatives, and they let me know, like, what happened. And that, I'm, I'm just... I'm blown away because I still can't believe it. Like, it's not registered. I talked to his brother. He's telling me. I'm like, nah, this still don't make sense. So, like, from from that point forward, I have been trying to trying to draw as much attention to that situation as possible because it's one thing to learn about, you know, people being killed on, on TV. You know, we hear about Trayvon Martin and George Floyd, and the list goes on and on. But when it hits your family and it hits home, it's completely different. So for me, it was just trying to keep that. Um, and I remember trying to, trying to give people this story and nobody really wanted to take it. Um, yeah. I remember I did a couple, I, I did a couple stories locally out in the San Francisco area, but other than that, like no national outlets wanted to pick it up. None of that stuff. So um, I remember talking to one of the offices um, down this way and he was like man one of the things that y'all have to do is make sure that y'all stay present like no matter what goes on like make sure that every court hearing whatever they have just make sure that your family is there because one thing that usually happens is like when families don't show up they usually sweep that stuff under the rug they'll drag it out for a little minute and then you don't hear anything else about that case that officer be back on duty he's got his job and nothing happened. So that was one of the things that I told my family. And then fast forward the next year, um, 2016, Colin Kaepernick starts to kneel. And uh, when Cap started kneeling, obviously it brought more attention to the uh, police-involved shootings. And then I started to see other guys around the league, like Malcolm. Um, and a couple more guys started to speak out. So in my mind, it was, okay, all of these guys are making individual statements. All of these guys are talking um, about what's going on in this country. How about we try to bring guys together and and let's make a movement out of it. Um, and initially for us, man, it was just trying to get the attention of those that was in that, those that were in position of power to hey, like we we have a problem here and let's address it as a as a country. Um, but that started in like I said back then, and to see where we've come now, where it's, for me, it's, it's surreal, it's mind-blowing um, that it took even, even the black community that long to get on board with it. When you, when you started to, to put this together, I remember you, you went out and you sought out specific individuals to go to, to Capitol Hill with you. 
Um, I believe it was Malcolm, Andrew Hawkins, Johnson Betamosi, Josh McCown, and Glover Quinn. Um, what made you go to those individuals and why start out on Capitol Hill as opposed to even just in a local city you were in or they were in? Yeah, so for me, those, those so I, uh, I was on the team because I, I was in Detroit, obviously, that year, um, 2016. So I had I was in the locker room with Johnston Batamota and I was in the locker room with uh, Glover Quinn. Um, I had seen some of the work that Malcolm was doing and I had heard Andrew Hawkins um, speak out about uh, the situation that they had in um, Cincinnati with Tamir Rice. Uh, Josh was a guy that I had played with. I had a close relationship with. And guy, Josh was a guy that I knew would be, you know, behind me 100%. Um, so those are the guys that I sought um, initially. And, and for us, like I said, man, we, we started out in Capitol Hill because that's just how naive we, are, we were. We didn't know, like, we, we just wanted to, A, we're here. We know that you guys are in, you know, a position to make a change. So we're going to come to you guys and, you know, hopefully it can start from there. But, like, when we started in Capitol Hill, we soon found out, like, quickly found out, like, this isn't the route to go. You know, you'll come out better and your voice is a lot more louder if you start on the, start on the, the local and the state levels. And I want to kind of come here and then maybe can backtrack a little bit. But when you see this year the NFL marketing machine and everything get behind some of the messaging and so many players get behind some of the messaging, what are your thoughts? When we hear about 2016 and you've just got this handful of guys before there's even a player coalition going to D.C. and now there's just this massive kind of in-your-face push by the league and some of these teams to, to, to heighten awareness. What are you, what are you thinking about that? Well, for me, it, that was the vision. When we, when we formally came together as a players coalition, like we sat down and say, okay, what do we want? Um, what is happening now is, was the vision. Like to use the, because there's no greater, in, in this country, there's no greater platform than the NFL. Like I don't, I haven't seen any other league, any other company, whatever it is, like draw the kind of attention that the NFL draws. I mean, if you just look at the Super Bowl in itself, like there's, there's nothing bigger than the Super Bowl in this country. And you can go to all other sports leagues. You can talk about um, the NBA Finals. You can talk NCAA Tournament. You can talk National Championship game. You can go on and on. But there is no other platform like what the NFL has. And for us, it was, yes, we want your dollars to go into the communities that we come from because the majority of the players in the NFL come from pretty much low-income communities. So we felt like it was invested in pretty much the future of the NFL. But also, we want to use all the resources available to the NFL. We want to use your marketing. We, we want to use all the connections that you have to make this as big as possible. I mean, you have 32 billionaires in the NFL. You have Roger Goodell, who many look look at as the face of the NFL. And every time he speaks, he speaks for the NFL. So if we can get these people behind us talking about the same things we're talking about, pushing the issues that we're pushing, I think we'll be able to make change in this country. But, Anquan, at the same time, it seems so obvious now. But you guys took some backlash because of that. 
what did what did you hear? What was said? And 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 how did it affect you? Well, it didn't affect me at all. I think some other guys probably had um, a, a harder time with it because they're on social media a lot. I'm not like that. Um, so I mean, guys took it hard. You know, guys were what? What did you hear? What What were people saying? Guys were being called Uncle Tom's. Guys were being called sellouts. You know, you guys shouldn't be working with the NFL. Um, they're using you guys as a publicity stunt, so on and so forth. And and here's my thought on it. Did I believe that everybody in the NFL was on board with what we were doing? Of course not. And they still, I mean, there's a lot of people that still aren't on board with what we're doing. But if you're going to give me the money and the resources to make a difference in my community, I'm going to take you up on that every time. Why do you think it was so hard for people to accept that message? Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of people didn't believe that the NFL was, was uh was being honest with, with what they were saying. Um, they didn't believe that it was genuine. Um, and like I said, man, you know, us starting a partnership with the NFL, there was a lot of questions that we had. You know, there was a lot of questions that we had for the NFL. Um, and we knew how it would go over. We knew how it would look, um, especially with the whole um, Kaepernick thing, um, with Cap being blackballed. But one thing I would say, like, even with doing that deal with the NFL, I don't think anybody that was a part of the Players Coalition ever backed down off of saying that how we felt about the whole Kaepernick situation, about him being blackballed, how it was unfair, so on and so forth. Only thing we were doing was just trying to use the resources that the largest um, company in this in this country had as a platform for us to to help our people. So, Angle, what about now? Because, again, I, I talked about the big push, but now you're seeing after the summer of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, white players jumping on board and, and, and white players being part or trying to be part of the solution or saying that they're going to try to be part of the solution. From where you guys started to now seeing more and more players being wanting to get involved or being fearless and trying to be a part of this without repercussions, because you talked about Cap, and we know what happened to him. Some of these guys are saying, I'm going to speak up now because they're not going to fire me. What about what about when you see that from everything you've done? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's encouraging, but I also understand, um, you know, what we're dealing with. Like, there's a lot of people that are genuine. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. A lot of people that are genuine, a lot of people want to see this change in our country. But there's there's also those who are standing up behind the causes that we're pushing because it's popular right now. It's acceptable. You know what I'm saying? And I understand that. Do you use that for the greater good? Of course you do. You know what I'm saying? Like there was a there were a lot of people, I mean, not just white players, there were black players who wouldn't dare touch the subject, not for the fact of I'm scared that I can lose my livelihood. I've honestly had players tell me, man, that ain't got nothing to do with me. Black players, mm. Mm. like initially starting out, we going to guys and saying, look, man, this is an issue that we need to get behind. It's a problem in our country, so on and so forth. Even with me telling them, you know, what happened to my cousin, 
I, I had some guys look me in my eye and was like, man, that ain't got nothing to do with me. That don't affect me. So how do you respond to that? I mean, you can't make nobody. You can't. Like, that's just like me trying to make an owner care. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's the same thing. Like, I can't change anybody's heart. Only God can do that. Only thing I can tell you is from my experience, what's going on, what's happening. And I can try to show you. I can try to, you know, I can try to show you. But if you don't want to, if you don't want to hear it, if you don't want to be involved in it, and that's what we had in the beginning. Like some players was like, hey man, they ain't got nothing to do with me. You know what I'm saying? That don't affect me. So nah, I ain't I ain't on that. Let me say this, Anquan. Just in the four years, and I want I wanna I'm gonna look at my notes here to make sure I get this right. Look at how far the players coalition has come with you and Malcolm co-founding it. You guys now have expanded into every other just about major professional sports league, whether it's the MLB, NBA, WNBA, Premier uh, Lacrosse League, the MLS, where you guys now are a resource to those leagues that they come to you all to try and, and, and find guidance on how to address some of these issues. You guys have worked with college programs on voting um, efforts at the University of Oklahoma, University of Arizona, Cal Berkeley, Delaware, Rutgers University. And then, you know, you'll hear people say, well, what impact is a Players Coalition really having? And then I look at some of the wins you guys have had. Let's talk about, for instance, youth justice. In Michigan, you guys were able to help in the practice of, of minors being prosecuted as adults. The, the age was um, raised from 17 to 18. You know, you guys advocated for Massachusetts to raise the age at which a child can be sent to juvenile court from 7 to 12 which is so significant when you talk about impacting a young person's life who might make one mistake and ultimately, you know, that could affect them forever. Um, let's talk about criminal justice reform. You guys, the Louisiana Amendment 2 requires now that there must be unanimous agreement of jurors to convict people charged with felonies. How that was never the case mystifies me that you could send someone to prison on a felony charge without a unanimous conviction. It's just wild. Um, you have the Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania, you guys helped pass the clean slate law, which automatically seals the records of 30 million criminal cases, as well as expanding sealing to include more types of misdemeanors. We can talk about voting in Florida. The Florida Amendment 4 restores voting rights to 1.4 million citizens with past convictions. You guys help fight for that in Louisiana. Same thing. Talk about education. The Massachusetts Student Opportunity Act, there's an infusion of $1.4 billion in new funding for public schools in Massachusetts. You guys help fight for that. When we talk about policing, you guys um, had a Baltimore policing forum, and the state attorney, Marilyn Mosby, announced at that time a do-not-call list of hundreds of officers that she said she would no longer call because of credibility issues. So when people say, what is the Players Coalition doing? And they may be ignorant to all of those things. How do you feel about the work that you guys are actually making a difference out in the community, which was the goal all along? Yeah, for me, for me, that's the only thing that matters. Um, you know, I was always taught, uh, you know, some people are just going to hate you just just because. Um, and, and that's the that's the motto that I take now. Like some people don't like um, 
just didn't like how we started up. Just didn't like um, what we were about. Just probably didn't like certain guys that were in the players' coalition. So they wanted to see it fail. But for me, man, it, it has always and will forever be about helping improve the lives of people in this country, people that look like me, people that come from communities that I come from. Um, for, too, for too long, we've been marginalized in this country. And for us to, us, to fight and bicker with one another is uncalled for. Um, and for people that question what the, what the, what the players coalition do. My only, my only question to them would be, what are you doing? Because I mean, we can, we can show you the work that we we've been doing over the past four years uh, or however, yeah, four or five years. Like we can show you actual results from, from the work that we've been putting in. And, and that was one of the things that initially I told everybody, look, because of how everything started, people are going to think that everything that we do is a gimmick. So I would just advise everybody, keep your head down and just do the work. And once you begin to do the work and stack wins on top of wins, people will then begin to see. And you don't have to go out and, and beat on the table about what you're doing and, you know, having to prove to people you're doing it for the right reason, so on and so forth. The people that you are helping will begin to advocate for you. So that has always been my message to everybody in the coalition, everybody that decides to join the coalition. Man, look, you don't have to prove anything to nobody. Just keep your head down, do the work, and then the results will speak for themselves. And well, I mean, that's—I've uh, been there. I've seen so much of the work you guys have done from the ground floor. We know not all players are involved in the NFL or so-called members of the Players Coalition, but they're doing their their own thing as well to raise awareness or, or to do that. And some people like, like you talked about people pitting themselves against one another, pitting themselves against you. Can't, can't there be multiple ways to come up with solutions? If not multiple ways, multiple organizations or multiple groups to come up with solutions and, and it all works out fine. It doesn't have to be your way is correct and my way is incorrect. Most definitely. I mean, if you, if you think about the number of problems that we have in this country, it's enough work to pass around. I mean, we as, we as a players coalition, um, even with the, the amount of people that we have, like, there's always room for more. How big, how big is that number real quick, just so we can let people know how many folks you guys have? Man, um, I, thought, I think you saw, like, when, when, the, when the Ahmaud Aubrey case happened and we did a, uh, I think we did an op-ed or we, we petitioned the FBI to, to um, begin investigating in Georgia. I think you saw like quickly, I think it was close to like 1,100 um, people signed on to that letter. And that was just like the beginning. Um, and that was before we started joining with different leagues. So it's a lot greater now. Actually, I don't know the number. Um, but like Jim said, man, there, there's, it has grown so much um, from where we started from with like six players who were, who we felt like were really truly concerned about um, the issues that were going on in this country to now it's spreading across all the leagues. Q, what was that meeting like when you guys actually formed a partnership with the NFL? There's been so much said about it. When you're in New York, there's the owner's meeting. Take us behind the curtains for a minute. And just what was that, what was that session like, that meeting? 
the 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 first meeting that we had was it was, I would say it was tense. Um, it was it was it was a lot because we had some owners in there, we had players in there, um, but like all of the players that were in there weren't weren't guys who were working together. Um, the NFL PA was in there. We had never talked to them, so it was just like a bunch of different people in the room, and there was a bunch of different people with different ideas bunch of different people with different views, how they, how they thought things should go. There were some people that were for it. There were others that was against it. So that initial meeting was, uh, was chaotic, um, to be honest with you. And then how did it go from there? How did you get from there to where you are? Well, after, after that meeting, um, you know, we began to, to talk with the NFL um, and we kind of laid out everything, how we, how we wanted to go about things, how we saw them um, helping us in, in accomplishing our mission. Um, obviously, they had, some, they had some suggestions. They, they had some things that they felt like they wanted to see get done. Um, and it was back and forth, man. I, I would say we, we went back and forth with them for months. Um, and then we, we finally just, you know, got a deal done um, and felt like we, we felt, obviously... Going into it, they had questions. Um, they wanted to know a lot of things because they were they were like, "Hey, if we give you guys this platform, if you give if we give you guys this type of money, like we got to make sure that you guys are doing what you say with it." Um, and for us, there was some some uncertainty about where they truly stood. Um, we wanted to know if they were really legit. If we wanted to know if they were really behind the players and, and the things that they were asking for. And like I said, everybody wasn't on board, but, you know, we got the, we got the blessings of those that we needed the blessings from. And, you know, we, we took off running. For clarity, was it ever offered to you, if we give you guys this money, will you promise not to kneel or protest during the playing of the national anthem? Was that, did the owners ever make, make that offer to you or say anything like that to you? That was never an offer to us because you have to think we at that time we we only had about I would say about 12 to 14 guys mind you there are other guys I mean how many guys in the NFL like we weren't we didn't even have their ear so we can't go to an owner and be like okay if we do this deal we can guarantee that nobody kneels like we don't have that power you know what I'm saying like we, we didn't even talk about that amongst each other. And that was the thing. My thing was, I want to make sure that every player always has the right to kneel. That's why I was so against them doing a deal with um, the NFLPA about guys not being able to kneel. Because even if it wasn't a situation with um, criminal justice reform or if, even if it was something else and guys wanted to bring attention to that, I felt like they should have that option to be able to kneel and bring attention to whatever issue that they felt like needed, you know what I'm saying, um, attention brought to that. So that was never a part of it. You know, initially, Q, um, for a little while, Colin was involved with you guys, or at least there were discussions. Is there any disappointment that it didn't work to where he's a part of the group and has some sort of voice in, in what you all are trying to do? Yeah, initially we were talking. Um, and, and honestly, there was a lot more guys, um, that were on, that were in, in the conversations initially. 
Um, for whatever reason, um, talks broke down. Certain guys decided to split. And, you know, we were left with who we were left with. Um, but I felt like we were too close and we had come too far to do something that had never been done. And I didn't want that to go, you know what I'm saying, by the wayside just because everybody didn't agree on everything. What, what are you most proud of, of what you guys have accomplished? I, I'm proud of the fact that we're, we're bringing about change um, that is so desperately needed in this country. Um, and, and we've talked about it, man. We, when you talk about marching and protesting and you talk about civil rights and you talk about the, the 60s and you look at how much we thought we had accomplished from that point. And then here we are in 2020 and you realize, like, man, we didn't even make a dent. Like, there's so much that needs to be addressed in this country. And I don't want it to be a situation where we don't take advantage of what's happening in our country right now. And then 40, 50, 60 years later, you have people that have to come behind us and take up the same torch. I want to make sure that we do as much as we can right now, that we make as big a dent in the things that's going on in this country as possible so that my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids, like they don't have to fight the same fight that we're fighting now. And that, that is my goal. And well, let me ask you this, and this is just, it's kind of a hypothetical, but Amir Abdullah uh, brought this up a couple weeks ago, the, the Vikings running back. And he said that the one thing we really want to see are the police officers involved in George Floyd's death be prosecuted. So let's just fast forward to whenever that comes about. How do you think it would change the tenor of things if they are prosecuted and if they're not prosecuted? So, so here, here's the thing, right? And like I said, when we're talking about criminal justice reform, when we're talking about all these, so, these issues that we have, one, one thing continues to stick out to me because we, we can... I think we're, we're on the right track, and I think we're, um, we're tackling a lot of these issues. We, you talk about the education gap. You know, we're, we're, we're tackling that. We're talking about, um, you're talking about the wealth gap. You know, we're, we're talking about that fair housing. We're talking about, like, access to jobs, access to, to the right schools, so on and so forth. And I think where we are right now in this country, those things are popular because they're easy. It's, it's easy to talk about everybody getting a fair education. It's easy to talk about people having the right to a, a certain job. You, you know what I'm saying? You're talking about, like, even in the NFL, um, hiring minority coaches or hiring minority GMs. Like, that's something that people can get behind. You know what I'm saying? Because it's an easy ask. The thing that I think we, we're, we're lacking on in this country is the accountability piece. And until we handle that piece, we will always be right here as a country. And think about it. If, if the officers in Minnesota were um, prosecuted, you wouldn't have the protest and the rioting. Like if you if you look at 
if the officers in the Breonna Taylor um, case were prosecuted, there wouldn't be no protests or rioting in, in Kentucky. And you can go down the list, like in Rochester, New York, like so on and so forth. Like, if you just hold law enforcement accountable, you won't have the, the rioting and the protests. Because, like, that's the reason that people are protesting and rioting out in the streets, because law enforcement officers aren't being held accountable. Like, people aren't rioting because, um, because of the lack of education or that gap. You know what I'm saying? Like, we feel like that's something that we can deal with. That's something that we can, you know, come to an agreement on. That's something that we can work on, so, forth, so on and so forth. But until we hold law enforcement accountable for these egregious acts that they're committing against people of color, you'll always have the writing. You'll always have the protest because obviously it's not right. But that's the thing that, that people like really hold on to. Like it's, it's unbelievable how you can see a cop shoot a guy in the back seven times and still be on the job and still be getting paid. And it's people justify it. People try to justify and, it. And justify it. And so that's the thing that, that has to be tackled in this country. And that's the thing that people, so like I said, people are easy to jump on the education piece. They're easy to jump on all the other stuff, but nobody wants to touch the accountability piece when it comes to law enforcement, because that means now you have to take on these unions, the, the, the uh, FOP and the police unions. And nobody wants to touch that. But until we touch that and until we take on that fight, we're going to continue to be here as a country. Why do you think no one wants to take on the FOPs and the unions? Because that's the biggest gang in the U.S. Like, hands down. Like, you... Think about this, right? You will see a, 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 an incident, like the George Floyd case or the Ahmaud Arbery case or whatever it is, like you'll see these cases and they're so obvious to us. And then you will have like the president of the FOP come out and say, they should not have suspended that officer. That officer was, a, was well within his right to use excessive force, so on and so forth. Even if he's just blatantly wrong, you've never seen the FOP come out and condemn any action taken by a law enforcement officer, right? And that's the equivalent. And, and not that I'm against unions, but I think at some point you have to have some kind of moral compass, right? Like Ray Rice is my homeboy, right? And we played together for three years in Baltimore. And when that happened with him and his, his fiance, his now wife, I wasn't standing on the table saying, oh, nah, he, he shouldn't be suspended or, you know what I'm saying? Like, he did it and he has to, whatever the punishment is, he has to deal with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have to have some kind of moral compass about yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like, and if you don't, we'll be where we are right now as a country. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, and when I said about the protesting and stuff, like, <clears throat> because the NFL took action on the Ray Rice incident, right? You didn't have people 
outside the, the stadium protesting against the NFL. Right. And that's for, that's for one reason and one reason only. Because he was held accountable. You know what I'm saying? People felt like they took the action that was needed in that situation. Same thing with law enforcement. If action is taken against those who commit these acts, you don't have people out here protesting. And then you'll have people say, well, why don't you guys protest or march for black-on-black crime? Well, the answer is easy. Because when somebody black commits a crime against another black person and they are found, you throwing the book at them. Go to jail. They go you to jail. You know what I'm saying? Like, you are throwing the <laughs> book at them. Yeah, like, they don't like, <laughs> like, you don't need to protest when the correct <laughs> action is being taken in right. those cases, right? So that's why you continue to see the protest and the rioting that's going on in this country. So if you want that to stop, hold the people accountable. You know, Q, I've heard, I've heard uh, current players say, that it's not about the owner's money anymore. It's not about their statements anymore. It's time for them to get on the front lines with players and use their access and their influence to try and make some of these legislative changes that can, that can lead to real systemic change. I wonder what your thoughts on that, because you, you deal with some of these owners um, in terms of your work with the Players Coalition. How important or impactful would it be if they came out publicly on camera, whatever, and side by side by players said, this is what we need. These are the actions that need to be taken as opposed to say, just issuing a statement or writing a check. That would be huge. If you, if you look at, okay, I'll tell you how powerful, um, how powerful like an owner's voice is, right? We, we took uh, Robert Kraft, for example, we told Robert Kraft, look, here in the state of Massachusetts, you have kids as young as seven, eight years old standing before the court of law. And he didn't believe it. So we take him to court and he see it for himself. And the guy, he, he starts crying because he can't believe it. Well, he writes an op-ed and I would say a little bit after that, raise the age was, was changed and happened in Massachusetts. Or you look at the Meek Mill situation. Look how quickly things change when Robert Kraft jumped on board. And like a lot of people don't know that, but like when he jumped on board, Meek Mill got out of jail soon after. <laughs> yep. It's true. Like soon after. It's true. So yeah. like these, these people have so much power, like it's unbelievable. And like, if we really want to change, like players can do, yeah, players can do their part. Players can do a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like we have a, we have a platform, but our voices, voices aren't greater than the owners because a lot of times these owners are the ones who are making sure that these people that are in positions of power, they make sure that they get there. They're cutting the checks for their campaigns and, and things like that. So, like, these people get elected because of the owners. And when the owners need mm -hmm. a favor, they can get a favor. I'm, I'm going to tell you, they, a couple have told me that it doesn't work like that, even though Who? I have presented that to them. Who said I'm not going to say names. I'm not going to say names. Owners or a couple of players? Not, yeah, no, a couple of owners. I'm not going to tell you. They told me that I'm mistaken, that the process does not work like that, that they do not go and ask these legislators 
for favors. So, okay, like okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to so, balance this. I'm okay. telling you. I, I got it, I got it, right? I understand that. But so you telling me Stephen Ross holding a dinner for, for Donald Trump, I forget how much each plate was. I think it was 250000 250000 a plate. Like, I'm going to give you access to my house. I'm going to host a dinner for you. And I can't get anything in return? <laughs> like, come on. Like, that don't make sense. Like, and, and even if you're not in the politics, even if you're not, that's just like... <laughs> yeah, come on, man. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't even, I don't even think I have the don't answer. Don't shoot the messenger. Like, yeah. don't shoot the messenger. I'm hey, the best hey, little hey, hey, Yeah, Jimmy I can't, Q. I can't buy that, man. I can't buy that. Hey, J- J- Jimmy Q, that, it, that's just too good to like even continue. We, we even wrap this up on that. Right. <laughs> Q, man, right, I appreciate all it, the work. Man. I appreciate all the work you guys do, man. I know, I know, Jim, all the work he does with you and amplifying uh, everything. It, it just means the world to us. And, and, you know, we can't thank you enough for coming on the Hunt and Flow podcast because we're going to get this out there and let people understand that the work is being done and the results are being done. Yeah, man, I, I really appreciate it. And, Jim, man, you've been a blessing to us at the coalition. You know, from the jump, you know, when a lot of people didn't want to, you know, get on board and, and didn't want to listen to us, man, you was always right there. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, from the first meeting that we had, um, you were there, man, and, and amplifying the voice that us as the players had, and we really appreciate that, for real. No, man, I, I, no, seriously, I appreciate the work you guys do. You know, you learn as you get older that that you have a purpose in life and that it's bigger than just a game or a career or whatever. So you just want to make try and make a positive change on um, positive change in this world, as you talked about for your sons and for me, for my daughters, and Steve for his kids. And really, that's what it's all about now. And and I'm always mystified when we have to explain to people why basic human rights are so important. You know, um, it, this is not a black white issue; it's a human issue. You know, and so I, I truly appreciate all the work that you guys do. And a lot of people don't know. And if they want to find out, they can go to you guys' website and, and see some of the work that you guys are actually doing. And the impact that you're making. So again, as Steve said, man, I thank you and I thank all the other members of the coalition who are out there trying to make real positive change. No, man, we really appreciate it. Thanks, man. And thanks for having me on too. You know, Steve, what struck me most about what Anquan had to say was number one, the impact that could be felt if owners were to step out front with players and use their access and influence to make real positive societal change. The other thing I took from what Anquan said is that you have to be really comfortable with who you are and what you are trying to do because there are going to be those who try and tear you down. As he said, they were called Uncle Tom's, they were called sellouts and whatnot. Why? for taking money from the NFL to apply to real change in this country. And unfortunately, I think we have too many people out there who try and say the players aren't doing anything. They're just demonstrating. They're just, you know, trying to grab the camera and whatnot. And then when you go and you check out all of the accomplishments, the wins that the Players Coalition has had over the last few years, it's significant 
and it's meaningful. So for me, um, having been there in the beginning, the first time Aquan went down to Capitol Hill, uh, it's just amazing to see how far this organization has come in the relative blink of an eye, really. Yeah, and I really took out of the fact that I'm glad he acknowledged it, that we all know, we know not all the players are involved in the Players Coalition, but there's a lot of players out there doing work. And, and the fact that he said there's so much work to be done, it's almost kind of good to have these different chapters or these different groups or these different individuals doing what they're doing because things need to get done and work is getting done. And that's kind of why, even though Anquan said the partnership with the NFL is great, that's kind of why the messaging, again, albeit good and and the intent being what it is, it is the work that needs to be highlighted, not so much the hashtags. So props to what all these guys are doing and what all the teams and what the NFL is doing. Okay, I, I props to that again. We're not crapping on that, but it is the work and the results of the work and that I, and need I, Steve, to be highlighted. No question. And I, and I think the other thing that, that Bear is saying here is that these players are smarter than people want to give them credit for and that they understand that you can't have it both ways here as it relates to ownership, as much as owners may want to. You know, you can't say I'm for social justice, racial equality, all of these things, and at the same time, essentially enable someone who clearly is not for those things when we talk about President Trump at this point. So players are mindful of that, and I think that's what we're hearing them call out, and that's what we saw in the Dolphins video, is that you can't have it both ways at this point, and if you are going to have it both ways, we're going to acknowledge it and call you out on it and let, let, let it be known that we see what you're doing here. So um, for me, that's why I think we've reached a point in, in this fight where it's almost like it is an either or thing. Either you are for racial equality and social justice or you're not. But you can't have it both ways and expect right. to skate, you know, to, to get off scot-free with this. And that's a, and to me, that's a beautiful thing. Well, Jim, in terms of making change, this is this is a great story. ESPN's Chris Mortensen um, wrote the story this weekend. It's, it's one of the best things I've heard, read. Soon to be Hall of Fame quarterback Peyton Manning just endowed six historically black universities with scholarships through his foundation. Again, that's Chris Mortensen who wrote that story. Four of them in his native state of Louisiana, Grambling, Southern, Dillard, and Xavier and then two in Tennessee, where, of course, he played football collegiately at Tennessee State and Fisk. And all of these scholarships come in the names of legendary, mm. not just athletes, but people, researchers, doctors at these universities. Real quick, Jim, your thoughts on just Peyton Manning stepping up like this? No, I think it's tremendous. And look, Peyton has always been a student of history. I think he understands the importance of HBCUs, particularly as it relates to Louisiana. Um, So I applaud him for this, and I applaud anyone else who wants to contribute um, to the fight of of helping uplift people. You know, the thing that's interesting to me, and you know this, Steve, I I know I don't have to say it to you, is that people think HBCUs are strictly 100% black, and and therefore somehow we are are separating ourselves from others. The reality is there are many whites who attend HBCUs, And so it is, again, it comes back to not a black or white issue, but an all of us issue. And so I applaud Peyton Manning for stepping up and doing what he did.
Yeah, I mean, whites and other ethnicities, Jim. You know, we were at Howard. Absolutely. I mean, we had mm -hmm. Asians, Europeans. I mean, a lot of people from Germany were at Howard when I was there. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 was, it was great. How about, how about this? The MEAC Offensive Player of the Year last year, Ryan Stanley, is a white quarterback from Florida A&M University. So people can say whatever they want about HBCUs. <laughs> they are diverse. They are inclusive. They were Thank just you. made. They were just started to help educate people of color because we were not allowed to be educated with those in the yes. mainstream. So on this note, we have a segment each week where we're talking about HBCUs and their contribution to American history and NFL history. Jim, we got the goat. We got the goat. He's coming in. Your guy, Jerry Dude, Rice. Oh, I was going to say, Steve, do we even need to give his name? When you say the Jerry, goat. My bad. No, no, you're good. But when you say the GOAT, we know who that is. Um, man, what a talent. What a talent. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and hear from the man himself. Jim, we are joined by the GOAT. Not only the NFL GOAT, but the HBCU GOAT. Mississippi Valley State's own Jerry Rice in the house. Oh my God! What's you up, Jerry? Got me all fired up. What's up? What's up, Mississippi Valley State <laughs> University Delta Devils? What is time? Uh, what's the coach name? Archie uh, Cooley, the Gunslinger. All that man. I'll never forget those days. I mean, first off, Jim, the Delta Devils. You know, we love our Bison, but that's that's like the sweetest nickname out there. Yeah, you know, also, got when I went to uh, visit the school, I remember looking at the colors, you know, the green and the red. So that really attracted me to uh, Mississippi Valley State. Plus, at that time, they were throwing the ball like over 90% of the time. And, and I knew I would have an opportunity to uh, really establish myself, uh, you know, catch a lot of football. That's one thing. But also... Uh, just get, a, uh, you know, get an education, man. That's the most important thing. Get the education first, then you play sports. And uh, it's just something I'll never forget. Jerry, we talk a lot about the experience at the HBCU. What was yours like? Oh, my God, man. I remember those fans being in the stand and, and the battle of the bands and all of that stuff. You know, it was, it, it was crazy, man, because we would come out um, – doing halftime to look at the band and watch them battle, you know, because it was going, you know, that was like a tradition thing uh, in the HBCU uh, schools, like Mississippi Valley, Jefferson State, and the list just went on and on. But uh, it was an experience of a lifetime, something I'll never forget. And if I had the opportunity to do it all over again, I would go back to Mississippi Valley State University Wow. And, and just relive that all over again. See, Jerry, it's interesting you say that, Jerry, because Jim and I did a show with Darius Leonard, you know, the uh, linebacker for the Colts who played at South Carolina State. And he said, knowing what he knows now about the experiences, like you're talking about the education, just the way it helped him grind in the mud, right? Because you always had to work harder coming from a black school. He would go back, even if he's getting recruited by the Clemsons and, and the Georges and Alabamas. He said he would still go back. 
So it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, and I joke around with uh, Montana, Ronnie Lott, all of those guys, because Ronnie went to USC, Joe went to Notre Dame, and I, and, and I basically told those guys, we had to work a little bit harder, you know, at those black schools, you know, because everything was not handed to us. I remember my uniform. I had to wash my uniform myself, you know, to, to, to look a certain way. I remember going, uh, practicing on those uh, dirt fields. You know, we didn't have all that nice, beautiful grass, but it just taught me the meaning of hard work and you know, just the love for the game. And also, I, I wanted to bring a lot of recognition uh, to Mississippi Valley State University. I wanted South to be able to go back in there and look at those players and say, hey, look, you know, Jerry Rice came out of here. You know, yeah, there are some diamond, diamond in the roughs and stuff like that. You know, we go in, we can get these players, and these players can, you know, just take it to the next level and, and, and really, uh, you know, help teams, also uh, the NFL. Jerry, in terms of shaping you as a man, not just as a player, what is the story from your time at Mississippi Valley State that, that speaks to that in terms of your development as a man versus a player? Man, I'm going to tell you, uh, at Mississippi Valley, I, I had three friends from uh, B.L. Moore High School. B.L. Moore High School was like in Crawford, Mississippi, a very rural area, uh, very small. Uh, like I said, we didn't have everything. And I remember a coach coming out to uh, B.L. Moore to talk to me face-to-face. And face-to-face goes a long way, you know, when you think about going to a college. And that's why I went to Valley. I think it shaped me because two of my friends that went to Mississippi Valley State, uh, they decided it was not for them. And I remember them getting on this Greyhound bus, headed back home. Something told me, Jerry, you got to stay here. You got to stick this out. If you do, uh, you know, great things going to happen for you uh, in life. It just taught me that. You know, you have to dedicate yourself. You have to work hard. You have to believe in yourself. And I think it really helped. It molded me because it, it, was, it was tough for me to stay there and, and still finish uh, my education, but also live the dream of uh, playing professional football. So it's something I'll never forget. But I watched that bus just leave the station. And something just you got to stay here. You know, this is your destiny. Mm. Jerry, when you look at so many of the, of the great players in the NFL who came out of HBCUs who have stories just like that, they weren't heavily recruited. They, they, they had to really grind. They had to wash their own uniforms, things like that. And you just look at all the great talent. 33 players now from HBCUs join you in Canton at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What do you think that says? I mean, even for today's player, because as we know, the majority of the great talent is going to the power institutions. But what these can do for you in making you well-rounded, and if you can play, you can still get into the league. Yeah, I think it's, it really says that HBCU, uh, you can go to those schools and you can be successful in life. You can go, you know, and, and – uh, Look at all the players that are uh, 
in the NFL right now that have played in the NFL, over 33 or more. So I I wouldn't go back and change anything. It, it was an experience of a lifetime for me. Yeah, I, you know, I had to work harder, but I, I think it just uh, prepared me for life, uh, for the NFL. And when I when when I got drafted by the San Francisco 49ers, it was it was all I had put the work in already. I knew what hard work was about. Now I just had to trend, transition that into uh, you know professional football, and I was able to do that. And, and my teammates, when I when I first got to the Niners, they thought I was crazy because I called a five yard slant and I went 95 yards. Mm-hmm. And I did this every time I caught the ball. Every time I caught the ball, mm-hmm. I ran to the end zone. And they were like, what is this rookie doing? But this was something that I did at Mississippi Valley State University because we had that uh, no-huddle offense, and you had to be uh, on the ball the entire time. So you had to be conditioned a certain way. So that was part of my conditioning. If I caught the ball, I, I was going to sprint to the end zone. Then Dwight Clark, Freddie Solomon, uh, Roger Craig, uh, Tom Rathman, all these other guys started spreading, too, to the end zone. So we became a very cohesive group of guys that was in great shape. And if you faced us on that given day, you were going to get beat down. It was no way, uh, condition-wise, that, that you were going to be able to, uh, you know, compete against us. You know, speaking of beat downs, Jerry, you won multiple Super Bowls with the Niners. And now we have not had a team repeat as Super Bowl champions since 03-04 with the Patriots. And I'm wondering from your perspective, if you could take us behind the curtain and tell us just what the real challenges are to trying to repeat and some of the things that you went through trying to repeat as champions. Well, let me tell you, brother, here's the deal, man. When you win a Super Bowl, you got that X on your back. Everybody the next year they're going to try to measure themselves against you. Every game is going to be like a playoff game, and you better be ready for that. So, uh, you know, we were able to do it, you know, back in the day, and it's just something I'll never forget. But we had a group of guys that were willing to, you know, stay with the San Francisco 49ers. You know, you, you look at in, in free agency now, guys are getting in position for the big paycheck. I mean, the big paycheck, once they get the paycheck, then they're moving on. So you had, with the San Francisco 49ers, you had maybe about four deep in every position. You had guys willing to take pay cuts uh, from other teams to come to the San Francisco 49ers and be part of that dynasty. So it's hard to get back once you, uh, you know, get to that Super Bowl. That's why when you get that opportunity, you better kick that door in because you don't know if you're going to, you know, get back the next year. Jerry, you just said something that, I've talked about for a while, but I think it's important for people to hear. At these HBCUs, when you played football, you talked about how you threw the ball 90% of the time. You're doing some spread stuff. You're catching and running. A lot of the strategies we're seeing in the NFL today came from some of these smaller schools, be it a spread, be it a run game based off of a wing tee, even though it's different formations. What about some of the things you see in today's game that have been incorporated from some of these great HBCU minds where the coaches may not get credit for it? Yeah, you know, I was at the game Sunday uh, between the Cardinals and the 49ers, and I noticed the Cardinals, they stacked like four guys to the right side and had guys to the right and to the left side. And it brought back memories 
because that was uh, that was the uh, run and shoot for Mississippi Valley State University. I think it really opened the door for a lot of the NFL teams because you know we had a lot of success. We were throwing the ball ninety uh, percent of the time. We got so much recognition. We had scouts to come in and say, "What are you guys? What are you guys doing here? How can you put up those numbers that you're putting up?" And now you start to see that, you know, in, uh, in in the NFL with the run pass option. You know, you see that it's spread it out. And, you know, you might get um, out balance on one side. Then you have a uh, you know, a single receiver on the left side, but it's really just Mississippi Valley State University. Jerry, who does who, who does Jerry Rice like to watch at the receiver position today? I still, man, Larry Fitzgerald, uh, DeAndre uh, Hopkins, uh, Odell Beckham, Julio Jones, and the list, you know, it goes on and on. I, I, I still love the game of football, and, and I, I think we still got some great receivers out there. Uh, I wish Larry would uh, get a Super Bowl ring and retire and stop chasing my records. <laughs> he, he, he told me, Jerry, he said he can't get to your records. He said your records are too far out. out. He can't get to them. So I think you're safe. I think in uh, I think reception wise he's about one seventy one now. Uh, yardage around over five thousand. He got to go over five thousand. But you know Larry Fitzgerald, uh, one of the greatest uh, to ever play the game, and probably the best hands in the NFL, man. And uh, you know since uh, uh, you know you look at Chris Carter because I I always thought that Chris Carter had the best hands, but I you know I, I have to say. Larry Fitzgerald's right there with him. You know you're gonna get a call um, from Chris when this is over. Yeah, Chris, Chris, you know, Chris, Chris, right. just like Chris is gonna be on. Yeah. So Chris, Chris okay. is not gonna accept that. So, so Jerry, I, I gotta ask: when you see these salaries, these guys are getting today. You're the goat. You just talked about Larry's got this far to go to get to you. When you see these salaries, are you kind of like? Charles Barkley used to say, Mama, you had me 20 years, 30 years too early. You know, I think we, we, we sort of like, we think that way, but then I played in an era where football was totally different. And, and it's just something about the era that I, that I played in. You know, it was like a, God, I, I remember players like Deion Sanders, Daryl Green. It was a fight, man, the entire time. All the way down the field, you know, it was not like one of those. Well, it's not just like the scenario of after five yards, you got to, you know, take your hands off the receiver. We were fighting the entire time. If the ball was not even coming my way, I was getting hit on the backside. So it was, it, it was like, it was like an all-out war. It was like uh, the movie Gladiator. You know. It, it, it was one of those the entire time because you had to establish yourself on the football field. So, yeah, even though salaries are much bigger, and, and I was talking about this with uh, uh, the previous owner, uh, Eddie DeBarlo, he said, you know, you probably would make like a, a billion dollars now. <laughs> if, you were, if you were playing in a league, you, you look at Patrick Mahomes, you know, what, what, what he's making now, you know, $500 million. So the salaries are, are really big, but, you know, those guys that are making those big salaries now, they have to uh, pretty much look back to the guys who paid the way for them and, and thank those guys. 
And you, you know, Mr. D would have paid you that half a billion dollars too. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have. He would have. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, he took care of his guys. Yeah, before we let you go, because you know we got we want to button this up. Um, speaking of HBCUs, your nephew, assistant basketball coach down in Mississippi Valley. What about that? Keeping keeping the bloodlines going. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, it's great when you can go back to those uh, HBCU schools and uh, you you know I I remember Willie Todd, you know Willie Todd, you know uh, he been all over the place coaching. Uh, he had a little bit of a uh, you know think and you know he was in the NFL for a little bit. I think he was uh, I'm not sure who who uh, Willie was playing with, but he been a coach at Mississippi Valley for so many years now. I always enjoy going back, man. It's just something about that energy. Uh, you know, I remember this this little dappy-headed guy, you know, at Mississippi Valley State University walking around that campus, man. Then, you know, you had those basketball games, and I think we had this nickname called Fine Look'em Joe. <laughs> As the receiver for we had we had these little uh little little jackets all made up and stuff like that. We walked to the the gym real cool and all that, man. But those days were, you know, really great days for me and something I'll never forget. And it, it's great to see when when people go back and uh and and really just uh relive that and also be a part of it. You know, Jerry, when you talk about nicknames. The GOAT. When you hear that, when people we bring you on identify you as that, how does that make you feel? You, you know, to be considered the greatest of all time, uh, I think it's really it's really special. But I think it doesn't just uh, it, it, it's not just athletes, man. It, it's people in other professions too. Uh, you know, look at this pandemic. Look at the frontline people, uh, everybody that stepped their game up. And, you know, we're going through really hard times right now. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, they're the greatest of all time, you know, to get us through this. And what you guys do, too, you guys are goats, man. You you know, you wake up every day. And if you, you're not going to be the best every day, but the mindset, if, if it's in your head that, you know what, I'm going to try to be the greatest of all time today. The motivation behind that, when I work out in the morning, you know, I try to inspire people every day, you know, and I'll post stuff on Instagram and I'll say stuff like, what are my goals doing today? You know, that, that could be the incentive to get someone off the couch and for that individual to do something, you know, for themselves. So I, you know, that's, that's, you know, I think it's a great honor to be considered the greatest of all time, but it's just not for athletes. It's just, it's just for people. No, well said, definitely. Well, look, as a San Francisco native, I'm happy to call you the GOAT. You brought a lot of joy into my household. I can t- I can tell you that. So we appreciate you. And, and Jerry, as Jim and I know, we, we see you all the time. You're the man, brother. Really, really appreciate you uh, joining us today and sharing that wisdom. Hey, remember, you guys are goats now, the greatest of all time. You have to pass that on to other people, okay? All right? Let's go. 
All right, Jim, Jerry's the GOAT. You know what I you know what I wanted to really ask him and I forgot to ask him? When he talked about washing his own laundry with those putrid green and red, who uses that color outside of freaking Christmas? But anyway, when he washed his That's own so laundry, wrong, did they come out so like wrong. blue and pink? Did he fade him? So I wonder man. if Jerry was a proper washer or not. Look, if you saw Jerry during his playing career, you know he was a proper washer. Jerry was one of those guys, <laughs> if you look good, you play good. You play good, you get paid good. So Jerry, no question. I have no doubt he separated the whites from the coloreds and he made sure he didn't use bleach in the colored. That would be my prediction, my assumption. And, mo and most people saw that uniform from the back because he was running away from it. Yes, he was. Well, uh, Jim, and as we know, Jerry, he's a Hall of Famer, Pro Football Hall of Famer, as well as a Black College Football Hall of Famer. You, sir, are a Pro Football Hall of Fame selector. And coming Wednesday on NFL Network, where we both work, we are going to unveil the initial list of candidates for the class of 2021. First ballot, guys, include the aforementioned Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson, Calvin Megatron Johnson, Jared Allen, Michael Vick. Interesting. And then there's also going to be some people from last year's 2020 class, of course, who did a finalist class, who did not get in. Guys like Reggie Wayne. Man, that would be sweet if him and Peyton could go in together. Um, Tory Holt, Richard Seymour, Zach Thomas, Tony Boselli, guys who've been waiting for a little bit. Jim, just what about this class of 2021? <laughs> it is star-studded. And, and then some of these other guys trying to get in when you know you've got some definite first ballot guys going in. Yes, yeah, Steve, it, it's no question it's going to be a um, competitive year. And for me, what it means is that every year going forward is even going to be more competitive. Now that we're the fantasy football era is coming into play in the Hall of Fame, where many of the, the, the folks who put up incredible numbers during that era when the game opened up, the passing game in particular I'm referring to, um, they're going to come into play receivers, pass rushers, those sorts of things. So Look, you've got a minimum of two on that ballot that you say are, are surefire in Peyton Manning and Charles Woodson. And you can make the case. It will be interesting to hear the case for Calvin Johnson because there are some voters who believe longevity matters. His career was not as long as some others. So will that be held against him as it's been held against Tony Baselli, um, who I believe is one of the dominant great left tackles in the history of this game? Um, so it's going to be a fascinating conversation for me. The other thing that's really interesting to me is that, and I've always made this argument, that the Hall of Fame should not simply be about stats. Otherwise, you don't need voters. And so when I look at a guy like Richard Seymour, who, for the sake of winning championships, adjusted his game or sacrificed elements of his game to be versatile and to help others, um, he should not be penalized for that. So he, Richard Seymour, if he were a selfish player, could have said, you know what, not interested in scheme or whatnot. I'm going out and getting my numbers. I'm getting my sacks to help me for the Hall of Fame later. And that's not who he is or, or who he was as a player. So um, we, we have a tough job ahead of us coming up. Um, but every year is tough, really. And I look forward to it. Even though it's tough, I look Unless, forward to it. Yeah, I mean, look, first off, the Megatron discussion, when you've got Tory Holt, and Reggie Wayne right there. If he yes. leapfrogs them, woo, it's going to be. But some people say he, he should. You know, he, he was that dominant of a player. 
But Jim, let's also not forget on the finalist category for contributors, Bill Nunn. We're going to continue to talk about his name because it's long overdue. Our good friend Kimberly Martin from ESPN just did a fantastic, fantastic video and written piece on the importance of Bill Nunn, a longtime journalist and scout for the Pittsburgh Steelers who really created a pipeline from HBCUs to the NFL. He could be the first contributor of color to make it to the hall. And on that, I'm going to let you have the final word. No, I, I look, Steve, you know I've been pushing for this for a while. I think that Bill Nunn is, is long overdue and deserving. And the thing that has always bothered me in this process is when we started putting in GMs as contributors, you know, um, people say that it was because they constructed champion championship clubs. Well, the reality is black folk didn't have a chance to be GMs up until 2001 when Ozzie Newsom, I think it was 2001 or 2002 when Ozzie Newsom took over the Ravens. So in my opinion, you have to judge these men, these black men, based on the jobs that they were doing or allowed to do. And when you talk about um, procuring talent from the historically black colleges, uh, none was better than Bill Nunn, pardon the pun. Um, he was tremendous. You think about the Hall of Famers he brought in, John Stallworth, Donnie Schell, Mel Blunt. He brought in half of, of what's arguably the greatest defensive line in history in terms of yeah. that steel curtain with L.C. Greenwood and Ernie Holmes. Um, and he was also involved with, with some of the other players who were selected as well, his input on that. So, so I'm ecstatic that he finally is going to have an opportunity to be voted on. And we would be remiss also if we didn't mention Tom Flores, who finally um, is going finally. to have his day to be voted on. Um, that one is long overdue as well, in my opinion. So it appears that, you know, I thought a year ago some of what I considered to be omissions would be addressed with the Centennial class. And that didn't happen. But thankfully, I think it's going to happen this year. So my fingers are crossed. I'm going to make the case as best I can. And I look forward to that moment. Yeah, have fun in that final voting room the day before the Super Bowl, because that's going to be fantastic. All right, with that, for Jim Trotter, I'm Steve White. Episode 2 of Huddle & Flow is in the books, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.